Hey, before we begin today, I just want to tell Clint just how thankful I am for our worship ministry. Nick, who normally leads our worship, and Clint, who's led us today. Uh, just thank you for using your gifts to stir within us a heart of worship. Will you guys just give him a hand and just thank him for leading us today? <clears throat> Grateful. So, hey, it has been said that there are certain places and moments in our lives that we will never forget. Uh, for some of us, this may be due to a special memory that ties us to a place, or for others, maybe there's a time that we experienced God's creation and the beauty of God's creation in such a way that it maybe captured our heart, or maybe produced a spiritual high. Um, so there's places like this for all of us. Uh, maybe there's uh, other places like uh, church camp or worship services or conference or mission trips, places that people repeatedly talk about feeling close to God. Uh, maybe as I'm talking about it, maybe your place has just popped into your mind this morning. Uh, I, I'm thankful that God has allowed me to have experiences like this uh, with him in many of these places that I've just listed, but anyone that knows me well knows how much I love the mountains. When I'm in the mountains, man, I feel close to God uh, in a way that I don't anywhere else. I grew up uh, going to the Rocky Mountains of Colorado with friends and with family, uh, and I have some special memories there. Uh, Elizabeth and I have had the chance of taking our kids uh, back to the mountains uh, almost every year for the past decade, and either in summer or winter, we have shared uh, some of our greatest memories up there. There's a uh, a certain place that we stay, and uh, man, we, feel, we always say it feels like a second home to us, and it, it just, it's a special place for us that we'll always uh, remember. But one extra special place that I'll always remember uh, is a little mountain outside of the town that we normally stay in called Mount Royal. Uh, Mount Royal is not the most majestic mountain. It's certainly not the biggest mountain, uh, but it, it's just a small mountain just outside of the town, but uh, it's definitely my favorite. Uh, my son Carter and I discovered it years ago when he was a little guy. Uh, we just found a hiking trail and started to walk up. Uh, and, and even though it's a little mountain, hiking up that sucker is no joke. I mean, there's some parts hiking up this mountain where we've got to stay pretty close to the trees that are on the side of the trail uh, just so we can grab onto them as we begin to slide back down that trail. It's just that steep. Uh, but, yeah, we, we discovered it. We've hiked up there about every summer that we have gone. Uh, and let me just tell you, as hard as it is to hike to the top, like being at the summit, uh, it's just one of my favorite places. It's a special place to me. Uh, it's a place where like all my anxieties kind of fade away. Uh, I feel close with God. I feel a certain peace that I, uh, I don't in other places. Uh, and it's also special to me because of the memories that I've shared with my family uh, in that spot. As, as Trinity grew older, uh, her and my wife Elizabeth began to hike up there with us as well. So we have a lot of special memories up there. For me, it is a truly a mountaintop experience. Uh, but no matter how special Mount Royal is to me, no matter how special the view, uh, no matter how special the memories or the spiritual highs that I've had in that place, the experiences that I've had every time that I'm up there, guys, they pale in comparison to the mountaintop experience that we find in our text today. Because in our text today, Matthew describes an experience that Peter, James, and John would never forget. Uh, it's a story that's found uh, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke. Uh, and Jesus, it's where Jesus shares a glimpse of his glory that the Gospel writers describe as the transfiguration of Jesus. That's a story that's so amazing, in fact, as I was living in this text over the past couple weeks and studying, I thought, man, this almost sounds fictional. This sounds like, like a movie that I might watch with my family or like a fairy tale that I might read with my daughter. But friends, it's, it's not fictional. It's not a fairy tale. It's very real. And it is so real, in fact, uh, that this is a story that can and should transform our lives and strengthen our faith. 
So contextually, this descriptive story, it occurs six days after Jesus foretold of his death and resurrection. Uh, a little more specifically, six days after he specifically promised that some of his disciples would see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom before they died. Although it's uncertain, many believe that the transfiguration is the fulfillment of that prophecy. There's all different kinds of ideas about that, but let me just say, after my time in this text and living here, uh, just contextually, that makes sense to me. And by the way, Luke's gospel says eight days rather than Matthew and Mark stating six, uh, but most scholars think that this is likely because Luke includes the days that, uh, includes the days that this event took place and not just the days leading up to uh, this event. But regardless, guys, the three disciples present with Jesus on this mountain uh, were Peter, who we have discussed a lot in the past few weeks, as well as James and his brother John. Uh, these were the disciples that were with Jesus the most. They probably understood him the most. Uh, they were with Jesus when he withdrew in fellowship with the Father. Uh, these are the three guys that were with Jesus a lot. And Luke tells us that Jesus took them up on this unidentified mountain somewhere outside of Caesarea Philippi, probably Mount Hermon, uh, to pray. That's the reason for the trip of this mountain, to pray. Uh, and then the Gospel writers tell us that Jesus was transfigured in such a way that these three guys, Peter, James, and John, that they witnessed a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. As he then began talking to two Old Testament heroes, Moses and Elijah. So guys, as I'm sure that you can imagine, this would have been an amazing experience to witness. This would have been a mountaintop experience that these guys would never forget. And so in my short time, in our short time together today, uh, my goal is for us to imagine what this must have been like. And in doing so, we're going to look at several observations found in this story that give testimony to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the transformation of the Son. We're going to look at the testimony of the saints. And we're going to look at the affirmation of the Father. And along the way, we're going to look at some different ways that this text applies to us and can, can strengthen us in our faith, can give us confidence in our faith. So uh, let's begin by taking a look once again at Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2, uh, as we dive in. Verses 1 and 2, Matthew says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And so, friends, what is going on in this passage is the amazing, literal transfiguration or transformation of Jesus. And I say transformation because the Greek word for transfiguration that's used in this passage is similar to the English word that we use for transformation. Uh, it's also similar to the, the word that we use, metamorphosis. If you guys are familiar with that word, uh, I see like homeschool teachers nodding right now. Like this is uh, a word that a lot of us remember in the context of caterpillars, if that makes sense. And so if like caterpillar popped in your mind with the idea of metamorphosis, you're actually on the right track. That's a good way to begin thinking about the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, because what caterpillars do, they, they build a cocoon and then they later emerge as a butterfly. It's the process of metamorphosis. It's a, a change on the outside that comes from a change on the inside. But here we have the word transfiguration, which also includes the prefix trans, and this means across. And so the fact that we have this, it allows us to think past what happens with a caterpillar, because the metamorphosis that happens with a caterpillar is natural, but the transfiguration that happens with Jesus is supernatural. So another way to think about this is that in this text, Jesus is crossing the line from what is natural to supernatural. He's crossing the line of displaying his humanity and displaying his divinity. The way John Calvin referred to this event was that this was a temporary exhibition of Jesus' glory. 
And I think he said that because of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, that he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So this is the reason that Matthew says that the face of Jesus shone like the sun. By the way, all throughout the Bible, guys, when biblical authors would try to describe something intensely white or intense, they would use the sun to try to describe it. And so it makes sense in this passage because what else besides the intensity of the sun in the sky could possibly be used to try to describe this glimpse of the glory of God? And Matthew also said that his clothes became white as light. Luke tells us that his face was altered, and Mark's gospel describes how his clothes became radiant or so intensely white that no one on earth could bleach them that white. Uh, David Watkins and the media team always give us instructions not to wear white shirts when we preach because uh, it reflects back on the cameras. But I said, hey, I'm going to ask forgiveness today because, hey, I'm preaching on the transfiguration. This shirt's an illustration, man. I can talk about how no matter how white this shirt is, it pales into comparison to what is described in this passage. Because what's described in this passage is Jesus' divine glory. And so Matthew just says that this happened right before the eyes of Peter and James and John. Again, what an amazing experience to witness. And those of us that might want to think back to the Old Testament, we might be reminded of how, how many parallels there are to this story, to the story of Moses on Mount Sinai. So if we think back to that story on Mount Sinai, when God delivered him the Ten Commandments, we find a similar glimpse of his glory. Uh, The book of Exodus, in fact, tells us that when Moses ascended up the mountain to receive a word from God, that he asked God, he said, hey, I'd I'd like to see your glory. He didn't say just like that, but he he asked God to see his glory. And what did God say? If you recall, God replied that no man could look upon his face and live. But then we learn that in his graciousness, God did allow Moses a glimpse of his glory. In Exodus 33, 21, the Lord said for Moses to stand behind a rock while the glory of God passed by him because God knew that any more than a glimpse would kill him. So God said that he would cover Moses with his hand to shield him from the full effect of his glory and he would allow Moses to see his back. And after this amazing encounter, uh, when Moses traveled back down the mountain, the Bible says that when he came down to deliver the Ten Commandments that he was glowing that his face was shining and he didn't even know it. And the reason for that is because Moses was reflecting the glory of God that he'd been exposed to. But in our text today, in the transfiguration of Jesus, he reveals to his disciples more than just his back. He allows his disciples to see his face. And Jesus is not reflecting God's glory. Jesus is radiating God's glory. And so my first point today is that the transfiguration reminds us that Jesus Christ is God with us. It's God with us. This is the first confirmation of the lordship of Jesus in this text. And as I've said a few times already, this is a mountaintop experience that these disciples would never forget. In fact, two of them later wrote about it. John, in John 1.14, wrote that the word became flesh and took up residence among us. He said, we observed his glory. He's talking about the transfiguration. And then Peter, who was also there, later wrote in his second letter, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, Peter said, hey, this isn't fiction. This isn't a fairy tale. We witnessed it. We saw his glory. We didn't make it up. So as I thought about this, okay, okay, this thing happened a long time ago uh, in a place far, far away. Uh, so how does, this, how does this text apply to us? And so I just want to share uh, two ways that I believe that this amazing event applies to us now. 
The first way is that the transfiguration provides a glimpse of our need for transformation. Now, the reason I say this is because earlier I told you that the Greek word for transfiguration is similar to our English word transformation, meaning change from the inside out. Well, that same word that's used transformed here in verse 2, it's also the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where he describes how we are transformed into the image of Christ. And so what this tells us is that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who's God with us, when we follow him, that this should lead to our transformation as well. In other words, once we know Christ, we're to be transformed. We're not to stay the same. And guys, I believe this is one of the greatest challenges for those of us that have grown up in this Bible Belt culture where we have been led to believe for so long that we pray a prayer of, or pray a profession of faith and then we just go back to our life as it was before. And the Bible simply does not teach that. The Bible says that once we are in Christ, that we can't help but begin to take on new form, to be transformed from the inside out, that Christ begins to change the way we think and feel and act and worship. He truly transforms us into new creations in Christ. And secondly, the transfiguration provides a glimpse of the coming kingdom of heaven. And so, friends, the, the amazing experience that these disciples had on this mountaintop It was really just a foretaste of what those of us that are believing and trusting in Christ will experience one day when the Son of Man will come in His glory. When the Father with the Son of Glory, when His Father with His angels, and on that day the Bible says that Jesus will no longer be veiled in humanity, but rather He'll come in His full majesty and glory. We learned this in Matthew 24, 30. And on that day all of the tribes of the earth will mourn as they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and His glory. And so for those of us that recognize this story is not fiction, for those of us that that place our faith and trust in Christ in response, those of us that are transformed in Christ, one day we will see him in his full glory, not veiled as he is in the transfiguration, but in his full glory. And get this, the Bible says that that heaven is the place where there's no longer a need for a sun in the sky. There will no longer be a sun in the sky because the Son of God, Jesus, The Lamb of God, the book of Revelation tells us, is its light. There will no longer be a sun in the sky in heaven because Jesus is so radiant in his full glory. He is the sun. He provides all of the light. It's a majestic idea to think about, guys. I don't know about you, but I am so encouraged by thinking about this. And then what comes next is the second confirmation of Jesus' lordship as the testimony of the saints. I mean, as if witnessing the transfigured Jesus wasn't enough, Matthew then tells us that Peter and James and John, they looked upon and witnessed Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah, uh, two Old Testament saints that any Jew living during this time would have known. Uh, And here they are. I mean, their parents were to raise them up in the faith. They would have trained them in the faith. They would have known who these guys were. And here they are. These two Old Testament saints have been gone for hundreds of years. They just pop into this amazing scene. Again, it's an amazing story. Uh, Look at verse 3. Matthew tells us, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Now, if you're like me, uh, when I'm in my study, I stop at this point. I'm like, hey, why these two guys? I mean, why not Abraham? Why not somebody else? Like, why these two Old Testament saints? Why Moses and Elijah? Is there anything there that we need to see? Well, guys, get this. This is amazing on so many levels. Uh, In the Old Testament, Moses represented the law, and Elijah represented the prophets. 
And so with this in mind, I want to remind you of what Jesus previously said in Matthew 5, 17. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so here we have Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament saints that represented all of the accounts of the law and all of the accounts of the prophets, standing with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, bearing witness to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. One more way to say this is that these two Old Testament saints simply being present on this mountain at this time communicate that Jesus is the one that they testified would come, the the one in whom everything they said and did finds its meaning. Guys, this encourages me. It just shows, it's one more way of how the Old Testament and New Testament just come together. It's one seamless story. All the law, all the prophets, all of that coming together in Jesus and here the two guys represent the law and the prophets standing with him on the Mount of Transfiguration witnessing the fulfillment of this. It's amazing. And then from Luke's gospel, we learn what they were talking about. They were talking to Jesus about his coming departure, which Luke tells us would soon, he would soon accomplish in Jerusalem. Again, told you, amazing story. And so not, does, not only does the transfiguration remind us that Jesus is God with us, but my second point today is that the transformation provides confidence in the mission. Confidence in the mission. See, God's plan from the beginning was that Jesus, who is the second member of the Trinity, would be born to die for the sins of man. This mission is testified all throughout the Bible. And in this passage, Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his fulfillment of this mission. Do you think that might have given Peter and James and John a little bit of confidence? I sure do. I mean, he just called them to take up their cross, to deny themselves, and to follow him. And let's be honest, who would want to do that? I mean, Jesus said, hey, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Who would want to do that apart from this, from this apart from witnessing the glory of God? By revealing his glory, Jesus was showing them, look, this is who I am. You can have confidence in how I'm calling you to live. You can have confidence in in knowing that there's purpose in me asking you to to deny yourself and to take up your cross and to follow me. And then on top of that, they're allowed to witness this testimony of the saints. Yeah, I think this probably gave them a little bit of confidence. And friends, it can give us some confidence as well. I mean, as soon as sin entered the world, God prophesied that Jesus, born of a virgin, the seed of Abraham, would come to offer a way for the sins of those of us that believe and trust in him to be reconciled. In this passage, we see it all come together. The testimony of the saints should give us great confidence, great confidence in the gospel as we believe and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So again, I've asked you a few times to imagine yourself on, you're on this mountaintop. Uh, but yeah, put yourself in these shoes. You're, you're either Peter, you're James, you're John. What do you think you would do at this point? How do you, what do you think you would say or what do you think you would do after witnessing this amazing event? Or, or do you think you'd be able to say or do anything at all? I don't know what I would do. I think I'd probably be speechless, but who knows what I would do. But, but Peter, he speaks up. Uh, Peter, being the kind of man that often speaks in Acts before he really thinks it through, uh, he does it again in this text. And because of this, I think verses 4 and 7 are, in my opinion, both amusing and encouraging. Uh, but let's keep going as we take a deeper look. Look at verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. You think? Like, I just love that he says that. It is it's really good that we're here. I like this a lot, is what he's saying. 
Uh, that's the part I obviously find amusing. Uh, but as amusing as this is, Mark's gospel actually tells us that Peter did not know what he was saying, for he was frightened. He didn't know what he was saying. He just starts talking. It is really good that we're here. Like, this is an amazing experience. I'm really liking this. Didn't even know it. He was just saying stuff because he was scared. You ever been like this? You know anybody like this? That They get kind of scared about something. They just start talking, or they get nervous, and they start talking. That's kind of what's going on here. And then Peter keeps talking. He says, if you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, there's some details here that, that help us kind of make sense of why Peter was saying this, but the basic idea behind what he's saying is, hey, it's really good that we're here, and I really don't want this to end. So, hey, can we stay here a while? Can we stay here a while? And, guys, I, can, I can't blame him for this at all. I mean, imagine yourself on this mountain experiencing this. You wouldn't want to go either. I mean, every time I'm on top of Mount Royal, I don't want that experience to end. Uh, in fact, one of the last times that Carter and I hiked up there, we, uh, it was early, the sun was just coming up, and we're like almost to the top, and we hear some noises, and we look over, and there's like two guys camping in these like pocket hammocks that are so popular nowadays. Like they packed them up, and they're like sleeping in the trees, and I'm like, now that's a good idea. Because if we had some of those hammocks, then, then we could camp up here too. We could stay up in this place even longer than we normally do. And that's basically what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to prolong the experience. But other than trying to prolong the experience, it's also thought that the reason that Peter said this may have been due to the time that this event took place. Because this was six months before Passover, which was a month that Jews celebrated and observed a, 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 a thing called the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. And so Peter may have been trying to make this connection. Uh, and it makes sense because if he was trying to do this, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, during this time the Jews would, uh, they would actually erect small tents or shelters and they would move out of their homes and they would move into these tents or shelters uh, for a short period of time. And they would do this to remind themselves of how their ancestors lived when they were in the wilderness. And so that could be a connection. Hey, he's trying to connect it to the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but regardless, I can just appreciate the fact that he said something. I mean, Peter gets a bad rap a lot of time for being the one to run his mouth and stuff. Uh, but I don't think he's the only one that's ever done this. And at least in this moment, he said something that sounded like it made sense. Like, I want, I want this to, to keep going. I don't want this to end. And, hey, I know, let's set up some tents to make this last longer, uh, just like we do for the Feast of Tabernacles. So, regardless, he doesn't want it to end. Uh, but... Uh, look at verses 5 and 6 to see what happens next. Matthew tells us that while Peter was still speaking, while he's still running his mouth, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. So while Peter's still speaking, still running his mouth, this bright cloud overshadows them. As this bright cloud overshadows them, this voice from heaven, notably, very similar to the way that happened at the baptism of Jesus, says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But then in this text, he adds, listen to him. Listen to him. And so, friends, following the transfiguration of Jesus and following the testimony of the saints, what we see here is a third confirmation of the lordship of Jesus, which also leads to our third point, that the transfiguration displays affirmation from the Father. Guys, on a number of occasions in the Bible, a cloud of glory was a way of manifesting His presence. Uh, we see this in the Old Testament. Uh, as We saw this in the Old Testament, I should say, as a cloud uh, protected God's people as they left Egypt. 
Uh, We also saw it in the story of Moses on Mount Sinai, which we've already discussed. Uh, We see it again upon the completion of the tabernacle and once again uh, upon the completion of the temple. But in this case, the glory, uh, this cloud of glory announces the presence of God the Father as he spoke and as he affirmed God the Son. And just like he did at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father called Jesus his beloved Son. And this is encouraging to me. In both cases, the Father declared him to be of the same essence of himself. Uh, Friends, if we look at Scripture, we find uh, that Scripture generally refers to believers as adopted children of God. Uh, But Jesus is not an adopted son. He's the second member of the Trinity. And so once again, this account testifies to the lordship of Jesus. And, And not surprising, when the disciples heard it, Matthew tells us that they fell on their faces and they were greatly afraid. But then what did Jesus do? Verse 7 says, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And then just like that, transfiguration was over. Jesus is back in human form. Moses and Elijah are gone. Cloud of glory is gone as well. Just like that, it's over. So a couple things I think that we can learn from the affirmation of the Father that apply to us as well. Number one is to listen. I want you to listen. Once again, I want you to imagine you're on this mountain. You witness this amazing event. You saw Jesus transfigured. You saw Moses and Elijah pop into the scene. You heard. You saw the cloud of glory. You heard the voice from heaven. And all of this, guys, did you catch what the Father said? He didn't say, this is my son. Look at him. This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Because I think, if we're honest today, a lot of us do a lot more talking to God than listening to God. Right? I think this text reminds us that we're to listen. So when's the last time that we we got on our face? We opened our Bibles and we said, God, I'm listening. Speak to me. Am I right? I mean, I think a lot of us are like Peter most of the time. We're scared of silence, and so we try to fill that silence, fill that void with talking. And so we just talk. Guys, this text reminds us the importance of listening. It also reminds us to trust, to trust the Word. Some of you guys may be wondering right now how you're supposed to listen. Some of you are thinking, okay, Ryan, I mean, does this mean that we're just supposed to close our eyes and get our faces and we're just to wait for the audible voice of God to speak to us? Guys, if this is you, I want to remind you of the Word of God, the Word that God has already given to you, your Bible, what God calls the living and active Word of God. We can trust it. And so th- this one's not going to be on the screen. I added this later. But, you know, Peter was on this mountain. He witnessed this event. He recounted this event in Second Peter. I read you that verse earlier. Uh, he said, we were with him on that holy mountain. But listen to what he says after that. He says, and we have something more to be sure. We have the prophetic word. So he's saying, hey, even though that, um, that experience that we had on that mountaintop was amazing, Amazing. We didn't make it up. We didn't come up with it on our own. And it points to Jesus as God. He goes, we have something more sure. We have the prophetic word. We have our Bibles. We have our Bibles. To which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's 2 Peter 1.20 if you want to look that up later. So here's a pastoral challenge for you and I today. As when we read our Bibles, or if we're reading our Bibles, are we reading it to check off the box of our daily routine and then just moving on about our lives? 
Are we asking God to open our eyes to what he has to say to us? Are we asking him to transform us as we trust in his word and as we seek to do what his word says? Guys, remember what Paul says in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, guys, that word that's used there again in Romans 12, it's transformed. It's the same word used in the story of the transfiguration. What this means, guys, if we are truly saved, if we're truly being transformed in Christ, then we're to trust the word and we're to be transformed by the word. So guys, this is my prayer that we would listen and trust in the word that became flesh, Jesus Christ. And then we're going we're to touch on verses 9 through 13. Uh, this is the conclusion of the story of the transfiguration. Most commentators call this a brief postscript of what just happened. Um, and, and because we've covered so much ground today, I don't want to spend too much time here. But the reality is we really don't have to. Uh, I'm going to summarize this and I'm going to tell you why. But the, the, these verses basically describe how after this amazing experience, Jesus and Peter and James and John, they're walking down the mountain. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, hey, don't tell anybody about what you just saw, at least not yet. Don't tell them until after the resurrection. Can you imagine how hard it would be not to tell anybody about what you just saw on this mountain? It'd be extremely difficult. And he goes, hey, don't tell anybody until after res- the resurrection. Didn't tell them, never tell. I mean, that's important because if they never told, we wouldn't have a story to tell today. They, so they did tell, but it was just after the resurrection. They had to wait. Uh, but, so, but the disciples not really understanding why, uh, why they couldn't tell anyone. They basically asked Jesus, hey, why not? I mean, Elijah still has to come before the, the rest of the story takes place, right? And, and Mark and Luke leave out the answer to their question, but Matthew doesn't. So this is another reason that we can cover this passage so quickly. Matthew tells us that the disciples' eyes were then opened, and they realized that this had already occurred in John the Baptist. But guys, regardless, it would be hard to wait to tell about this story. I mean, if I was up there, I would want to tell everybody I knew about what I had witnessed on, on this mountain. I'm sure you can imagine. It would be hard to wait to tell others about this. Uh, I mean, even though nothing as amazing as the transfiguration has ever happened to me on Mount Royal, I love to share about that place. I've shared this morning about how I love to be at the top, the memories that I have with my family, how I feel close to God, how my anxieties fade, how I have peace in that place. Because there's one thing I left out. Here's what I left out is that the feelings that I have up there, they don't last. Although I might could extend my time up there by getting some hammocks and camping in some trees, it still wouldn't last because at some point I come back down the mountain. When I do, I'm faced with the reality of life. I'm faced with the reality of sin and the fact that I live in a sinful and broken world and the trials and tribulations that come with that. And so no matter how amazing my mountaintop experience is on Mount Royal, my mountaintop experience fades and my, st- my soul, it still longs for peace. And maybe you can relate. I mean, a lot of times people come back from vacations. A lot of times people come back from youth camps or conferences or mission trips. I mean, next week we'll probably have you know, youth that come back from New York. They're going to be sharing amazing stories. They're going to be, they're going to be have, coming off this spiritual high and talking about this experience they have. And that's awesome. We want that. I mean, God uses those experiences to, to, to give us confidence and to transform us and to, to give us confidence in the future about how he's worked in our lives in the past. But as we wrap up our time today, I just want to make sure that I remind us all that as awesome as our favorite places are and as amazing as our spiritual highs are, that places and experience are not where our hope truly lies. 
Does God use places and experience to give us confidence and strengthen our faith? Absolutely. Should we look back on them and be reminded of God's faithfulness? Absolutely. Uh, how many of you guys ever get anxious about what's going to happen tomorrow? A lot of us, me included. One of the greatest remedies of that is to look back and see how God has worked in your past. When we do that, when we look back at those moments that God has made himself known to us, we can, we can strengthen our faith. We can, have, we can have confidence in moving into tomorrow. So we should do those things. The, the disciples did these things, and we should too. But no matter how special our places are to us, or Mount Royal is to me, no matter how special your place is to you, experiences in and of themselves will never provide lasting peace and will never satisfy our souls. Jesus, who is God with us, is the only person that can truly satisfy our souls and provide lasting peace. And so even today, I want to extend a challenge for us to not allow today today to be a day that we came to worship, we sang some songs, we, we heard a sermon preached, and then we just let that experience fade. But I want to challenge us to ask God to use this experience of worship today to point us and others to Him and to help us to be transformed doers of the Word. I also want to challenge us not to let this experience end when this service ends, but then to take this text, to take these conversations to our community groups and to our dinner tables and to keep asking God to to use this text and to keep using these conversations to continue to transform us as we long for the coming kingdom of heaven. Then I want to challenge us to do this again and again, week after week, until that day comes. Because, friends, the transfiguration reminds us that Jesus is God with us. The transfiguration proves it. The saints testify it, and the Father affirms it. So my prayer today is that we'll respond to him today with transformed lives. Will you join me as we pray? Father, that is my prayer today, that we would not just allow this to be another service that we came to today and then move on about our lives, but, God, that you would use this time that we have spent together in song, singing praise to you, and in your word, witnessing in your living and active word, how you came, how you shared a glimpse of your glory to Peter, James, and John in such an amazing way, and how we can look back on this, this time, this experience that they had, and, and we can find confidence in our faith in you, confidence in your mission as we trust in you. And God, help us to carry that confidence into the rest of today and into tomorrow, not just for our own benefit, but to give us the confidence to share about you to others. God, I pray that you would truly transform us. God, that you would get the glory for that transformation as we long to see you face to face in that place where there will no longer be a glimpse of your glory, but where your glory is completely unveiled, where there is no longer a need for the sun in the sky because you are that sun. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.